Hello, I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. Welcome to Biota. What you're hearing is one of the classic sounds of spring and summer, croaking frogs. However, frogs, toads, and salamanders are facing a lot of challenges which are threatening their survival in some habitats. If we think about potential causes of their extinction, things like climate change and habitat destruction quickly come to mind and are definitely causes. However, one aspect of amphibian biology that is getting more attention in terms of what is a potential cause of declining numbers and extinctions is their skin microbiome. In recent episodes, we've talked about the gut microbiome of different species and how those data are used for everything from epidemiology to carnivore conservation. In this episode, we will highlight the skin microbiome and not only why it's important for amphibian health, but also how some diseases are affecting amphibians by infecting and establishing on their skin. For amphibians, skin is more than just a covering. It performs a lot of different functions. So in addition to sealing the organism up, it's also a respiratory surface for gas exchange and also plays a role in the immune system. Just like we talked about with the gut microbiome, the skin microbiome is an ecological community of organisms living together and interacting. As you'd expect, disruptions to that community can cause problems for the host. And those are the topics we want to explore with our guests. Today, we are joined in the studio by two herpetologists from the Sam Noble Oklahoma Museum of Natural History, Dr. Cam Seiler and Jessa Waters. We are going to talk about their research and some of the threats facing amphibians today. Welcome to Biota, Cam and Jessa. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Sarah and Phil. So let's start with the basics. What is herpetology and what are amphibians? Because as I understand this, not all things that are studied by herpetologists are amphibians. And so can you clear that up for us? Herpetology is the study of amphibians and reptiles. The two groups are actually quite distinct from each other and have been separated evolutionary for many millions of years. They are linked together from kind of a cultural perspective because when biologists were first developing fields of science several hundred years ago, they did not fully understand the biology of the two organisms and they were the creepy crawly things and so they were lumped together. And so is there like a quick way if you just sort of look at them in the field that you could say, oh, that's a reptile or that's a amphibian? What would be a quick way people could differentiate them? Yeah. So in large part for the majority of amphibians, they are recognized as having kind of smoother, somewhat slimier looking skin, although their skin is not necessarily slimy. They're often associated with water habitats streams, rivers, ponds, uh, lakes, but it's not 100% the case. Uh, a lot of amphibians, when people think about them, they think about frogs or salamanders. Those are the two major groups, but there's a third one that people often don't recognize that are the Sicilians. And these are burrowing worms that people would look at and be like, there's no way that's an amphibian, but sure enough it is. Besides being potentially slimy, what is it that makes amphibians special? What is it about their biology that's unique and really distinct as compared to other animals and especially reptiles? For one thing, reptiles have scaly skin and because of that scaly layer, they are impervious to water, whereas 
Amphibian skin is not impervious. It's highly porous. And so water can go through their skin. Anything in the water can go through their skin. So if they're in a, living in a polluted environment, that can also go straight into their body. They don't have enough protection. And they can also go through gas exchange directly through their skin. Interestingly enough, too, just to add on, uh, amphibians have all external fertilization, with the exception of uh, a few salamander groups and one frog called the tailed frog, which is in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, actually. But reptiles have internal fertilization, so the way they fertilize their eggs is very different as well. And to follow up on that, what's the most important thing that people should understand about the ecological importance of amphibians? They have a crucial role in the food webs um, across the globe as they are primarily all insectivores. And so their role in the food chain is critical in terms of keeping insect populations under control. And then they provide an important prey source for birds, snakes, um, raccoons, and other organisms. And so the loss of frogs would take out an entire layer of the food web globally. And in addition to that, they're also known basically as bioindicators. So we hear a lot about the canary in the coal mine as an early warning sign of air quality. Well, amphibians are closely tied to environmental quality, water quality, and are among the first when the environment becomes degraded or polluted or climates are changing to have immediate responses to that that are observed. Yeah, in a previous episode, someone was talking about pine martens, a mammal, and they said that those are a sentinel species. So would you consider amphibians to be that same kind of thing, maybe as a whole group even, that if you find them, that's good, but if they're not there, something's wrong? Yes, I would agree with that. I think there's variations on that theme. Amphibians can be in very diverse communities. So you may see common species that is hiding the fact that you've lost a lot of the more rare sensitive species. But overall, the diversity having a rich, diverse community of amphibians is a great sign for the environment. Well, let's let's turn to that topic. And I know this is going to be a big one and it might be hard to summarize, but can you give us a general idea of what the threats are and maybe what the amphibian biodiversity crisis is? Because I've heard about this for a long time and it seems like one of these things that's out there, but doesn't get the press that other issues get. So it's a combination of several different factors that often even work together synergistically. So habitat loss, which affects nearly all life on Earth, let's be real invasive species and amphibians themselves can even be invaders such as bullfrogs which then impacts other um, native amphibians particularly in in the western part of the united states and then pollution like i said before they have no protection from anything any chemicals in the environment can go straight into their body atrazine is a fantastic example of this it's a agricultural product that's sprayed on fields all over the united states and it can actually cause sex reversals in frogs and that living in the water where the atrazine is draining off of agricultural fields and the research on that is still growing and we're still trying to understand how that chemical can in effect just not just frogs but other organisms in in the same water systems and then climate change is that the, the amphibian life cycle is extremely tied to environmental conditions in terms of what is the temperature, when did it rain, and how quickly did water bodies dry up after rains. Um, many amphibians only breed in puddles and small water pockets. And so if it's extremely warm outside, then the water may dry too quickly before the tadpoles have gone through metamorphosis to leave the water body. 
And then lastly, um, there are several different amphibian diseases that are impacting globally, and many extinctions have been linked directly to um, some of these diseases, particularly in Central and South America, and climate change can contribute to their spread. And really, just to add on, as far as vertebrate groups on the planet, amphibians are one of the most threatened species or groups of vertebrates. It's estimated that close to two-thirds of species are threatened with extinction currently. One of the things you mentioned there was that the atrazine can have effect on sex reversals. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So what they have seen in multiple frog species is that chromosomal males will not grow testes or will grow abnormal testes and will actually also grow female organs that are non-functional. So you can have an entire population at a pond with non-functional males. And so they would only have functional females in any given water body. Now, if individuals move between ponds, then the effects may not be as noticeable. But at certain locations, you could have entire field seasons where no functional breeding occurs. Going back to the idea of disease as a threat for amphibians, I know that in your research you collect amphibians and then swab their skin. Can you tell us about that? Why are you swabbing frog skin? So two of the pathogens that have been linked to amphibian declines in the last few decades are ranaviruses, which is a systemic virus that amphibians are encountering in populations. And the one that's reached headlines most often is chytrid fungus. And this is a fungal pathogen. Chytrid fungus occurs naturally in soils around the planet, but a pathogenic strain or strains have started over the last several decades to impact amphibian populations in a bad way. And what do those infections do to the, the frog or the infected individual? Um, so rainavirus as a systemic infection, um, the early signs are basically being really lethargic, which means they can be predated on early before they even make it to later stages of the disease. But if they do make it to later stages, it actually caught, leads to hemorrhaging and then um, mortality. And it's most lethal in the tadpole stage of frogs. Many organisms, if they make it past the tadpole stage to adulthood and contract rainavirus, it's often not lethal. With the chytrid fungus, it grows in the keratinized structures of their body, and so in this case, skin, and also for tadpoles, it grows on their mouth parts. And so in tadpoles, it can lead to starvation because their mouth parts will not function properly to scrape algae. And then in the adults, with it growing on the skin, um, it can basically cause problems with osmotic regulation, um, respiration, things like that, then eventually leading to mortality as well. And therefore, with your original question, the skin swab is how you can test for the disease because it's like you're scraping a fungal cell off of the skin of the amphibian. And so what are you learning from this work? Because I, I think you're studying frog populations around definitely Oklahoma, but maybe other areas. What are you starting to see as a pattern, if anything? So, yeah, our lab for the last uh, probably six, seven years at this point has studied Oklahoma populations of amphibians. We've also studied populations in Thailand and the Philippines. Uh, around Oklahoma, I think we were most surprised when we got started to see that chytrid and ranavirus are everywhere. They're in most of the populations at some level. Almost all species have some level of infection. It just varies by location and by species. And what we really now have spent the last year or two focusing on is 
we know it's there, but what is it doing to these populations? And so over time, if we re-swab, are we seeing trends getting worse or staying the same? So how are humans influencing and causing some of these problems or worsening some of these problems? Are humans helping to spread these between different populations? Yes, um, humans unfortunately are contributing to spread um, through both direct and indirect impacts. For direct, it's the, the idea that many um, Americans myself included, enjoy spending time in the outdoors. You go hiking, you go fishing, uh, you go boating. And if you aren't disinfecting your gear, your boats, your waders between locations, you can inadvertently literally directly spread disease components between locations. And then indirectly, we are contributing to spread basically by impacting the environment in ways that it's increasing amphibian stress. And so they are not able to fight it off as well. And there are things like ranches in Oklahoma that surround ponds. The, the disease components can be moved between ponds on cattle hooves that if the cattle were not there would not have been an issue. Here in Oklahoma, we have many um, oil and gas components spread all over the environment, even with ponds nearby. And so again, that's something that's contributing to the stress of the animal, but not direct spread. But overall, yes, we unfortunately are making things worse. So would this kind of be like what we think about with our own health, that if we're stressed, we're more likely to get an infection or, or be more susceptible to disease. So when we think about the skin microbiome on these frogs and salamanders and things, is that you know community and a healthy amphibian resistant to infection? Or are these like the, you said, rhinovirus and chytrids, are they just so aggressive they can get in and really attack? And Phil, I think you hit the nail right on the head is exactly where the field is looking right now. There's a lot of active interest in <laughs> microbial communities and the recognition that for humans, we now know the microbiomes of humans is critically important to immunity, health, digestion, nutritional uptake. And the same is expected for all organisms that share these symbiotic relationships. And what we now have researchers actively doing is trying to identify key uh, characteristics of these microbial communities in amphibian skin samples, in amphibian gut samples, and tying those to the presence or absence of infection and seeing if we can begin to identify what a healthy microbiome is and how it might infer some resistance or immune response. Are there any species that are just better at fighting off the chytrid fungus, whether they be healthy or not healthy? Yes. Um, here in the United States, um, the Rainidae family, which are what we call the true frogs. So these are leopard frogs, bullfrogs, and a lot of their relatives seem to be in many cases naturally resistant. And in the case of the bullfrogs, because they've been introduced to much of the western half of the United States, they are carrying chytrid with them to their introduced locations. Even globally, bullfrogs have been introduced globally as a food source. And so they are spreading it as they go, but still living and surviving. Is there any sort of treatment that can be used to help species that may be more susceptible? That's a really complicated question. Um, because the chytrid antiranovirus can exist in water, even without animals living in the water with them for weeks at a time. And the chytrid itself is even, um, the spore stage is a modal spore, so it can, it can actually move in water. So it's 
very difficult that even if you were to say had a captive breeding population of frogs that were really threatened and you treated them with um, antifungals in a laboratory environment, which people are doing, and then you want to release them back because that's the ultimate goal, right, is to put them back in the wild. Unless you were also treating the water and also protecting the habitat around the water, in the long run, it's still going to come back. And that's of real concern. I read an interesting paper where a group of researchers in Spain actually eradicated chytrid from a small island, but it took them like a decade to do it. And they constantly treated the water and constantly worked on it. And there's still always a chance, sadly, that, for example, um, migratory water birds can bring it in on their webbing. There's always a chance that it could come back. So thinking about this whole problem we've got with amphibians, Let me ask you sort of two things. One, if you're going to give our listeners an idea of what they could do just individually to maybe prevent spreading or make things better, because ecotourism is is important. Maybe somebody wants to go to some remote location. What are things they could do? And then secondly, what could people do to make their, you know, their backyards or their immediate environment more amphibian friendly? So uh, right off the bat, being conscious of what you're bringing into and out of environments and when you're transitioning between environments. So as Jessa mentioned, for people that hunt or fish or hike, there's simple solutions to actually easily sterilizing whatever the bottom of your shoes or boots or fishing gear when you go between pond habitats or hiking trails. That can be an easy thing that everyone starts to do. So that's something they can do to... So, yeah, we assembled the easiest one is just a low percentage bleach solution. So have a spray bottle with, you know, 8 to 10 percent bleach water that you spray the bottom of your shoes and let them dry in the sun. Would that be even something like if you had a kayak or a boat that you should clean the outside of that off and leave all your water where you got it? Absolutely. Yeah. Once you take it out of the environment you're in, spray it down, let it dry off in the sun, and that immediately will cut down on any possible cross-contamination to different environments. We also recommend that many people who are fishermen wear felt bottom waders, which is basically like about six inches of felt on the base of their boot, and it allows them to kind of grip on rocks. This is really commonly used by um, people do fly fishing, and but the felt does not really dry out, and they have been able to record that chytrid spores can remain viable within the felt for up to two weeks. And so in many states, you actually can no longer use felt bottom waders, mainly because of a concern of aquatic invasive spread, like zebra mussels or algaes. Um, And so in some states, it's actually been banned to even use felt bottom waders. That's not the case in Oklahoma, but we would definitely discourage anyone who purchases waders to only buy the ones that the base of the foot is more like a hiking boot. If a person is interested in doing citizen science or in some other way trying to help amphibians and other herps, what's something that they can do? I'll let Jessa jump in in a second as well, but one thing that uh, has been great is similar to this program is public education. So programs and initiatives like iNaturalist are great resources for just observations, documenting what you see, when you see it, and where you are. So having information where you have a free application on your phone and you take a picture or record a frog call in the wild and post that gives scientists and conservation biologists and the public information about the amphibian community, its health, when it's active, and where it's located. 
Our department at the Sam Noble Museum has also recently had our own citizen science program specific to chytrid swabbing um, that we ran from 2016 to 2019 and had hoped to continue, but unfortunately the pandemic got in the way a little bit there where for those um, few years, we would send small boxes with swabs and a small laminated guide to um, how to identify frogs of Oklahoma. And we would send them to teachers across the state at no charge. And they could go on a field trip with their students and catch the frogs and swab the frogs themselves and then mail them back to us at our department so that we could do all the screening and then provide the results. And that was a really successful project in terms of everyone who did it really got a lot out of it, really enjoyed it, and we were able to obtain chytrid result data from areas that we may never have gone to, like small ponds or private lands. And so it was able to give us a better understanding of the breadth of the chytrid presence in the state of Oklahoma. So before we wrap this up, we just want to give you a chance to share any sort of last thoughts or anything that you want our listeners to remember or think about as really important questions for research or things that they should appreciate about amphibians or or any of these interesting animals. Uh, More than anything, just understanding that amphibians and reptiles are the coolest organisms on the planet. And just to be clear about that, uh, just kidding, half kidding. But in addition, I think the biggest thing as a biologist and evolutionary biologist is that I've realized the last decade is that these systems and these problems we're facing are way more integrated than we ever expected accepted or understood. And so when we talk about conservation or we talk about threats, it's not simply about the environment or the frog. It's about the integrated way that humans interact with the environment and what other organisms in that ecosystem are interacting together. And I think we have to come together and ask questions that bring scientists and the public and policymakers together from very different fields if we have any chance of trying to address some of these grand challenges. I would just say that for me um, as a herpetologist that I think that after years of doing outreach with the public um, through Sam Noble, that children have a true love for frogs and a true love for snakes and all of that. And that as they get older, that weird creepy crawly stuff seems to go back to the back of their minds and they kind of forget that those are are an important part of, of the ecosystem of our earth and they don't pay as much attention. And so I think I would just, yeah, it's all about education efforts and trying to encourage people to remember that they are an important part throughout their lives as they make decisions, um, environmentally based decisions. That brings us to the end of this interview. We would like to thank both of you for being here and giving us your time. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming in and taking some time today to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Until next time, I'm Sarah Sanders. And I'm Phil Gibson. But before we go, I want to thank Sarah for being with us for these last few episodes. She's off to her next great adventure and we'll be checking in on her from time to time. So thanks to Sarah and all the help that she gave us this year. All right. As we like to say at this time, thanks for listening. Have a great day and take very good care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Thank you.